As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim Wyatt. Microchips, Bill Gates, The Mark of the Beast, 5G cell towers, false positive rates, Big Pharma, DNA alteration. It's been hard to avoid the swirling morass of misinformation and conspiracy theories around the pandemic. And this confusion and fear has surged in recent weeks as the first COVID vaccines have begun to be rolled out. But why have so many people, including many in the church, fallen for untruths about coronavirus? Where has all our trust in government, in science, and even in doctors gone? How can we steer a clear path through the toxic brew of lies and misinformation swamping the internet and social media? I'm about to speak with my dad, John, to try and figure out how we can find our way through this and hold on to truth in this difficult time. John. Um, today we, we wanted to delve back into the, the topic of, of coronavirus vaccines, but approach it from a slightly different angle than before, which is to explore the kind of explosion in uh, misinformation, conspiracy theories, uh, confusion, and the overall kind of lack of trust that, that a lot of people have seen and are hearing, uh, both inside the church and in wider society. Um, I wanted to start off by asking you a quite simple question. Why is it, do you think, that levels of trust in scientists and in doctors and in government seem to be so low at the moment? Yeah, it's a really interesting and and disturbing trend, isn't it? Um, I think I've said before, but it, it seems like you've got a physical virus which is spreading and replicating across the world, and, and then you've got this uh, pandemic of misinformation. Some people call it an infodemic um, and it seems to be having many of the same features about exponential rise and dissemination and and uh, way it can be traced across the world. But it uh, it seems a much deeper and more uh, complex problem to try to uh, oppose. Um, paradoxically, uh, finding a vaccine and and disseminating it and. Um, against a physical vaccine, a virus, it seems to be much more effective than how on earth are we going to uh, resist this um, this pandemic of, of misinformation. I think it has many different complex roots and, and uh, you know, one has to speculate. I'm sure um, a lot of it uh, is the fact that 
you know, if, if you go, you can go all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century, you know, it's a long, long time ago, which was when I think science was seen as, as the great white hope um, for mankind. And uh, there were a, a lot of enormous optimistic um, forecasts of, of the way that science and engineering and technology was going to revolutionise the future for humankind. And, and then one by one throughout the 20th century, we get a whole series of catastrophes which are related to, um, to science and technology. And um, particularly in warfare, you know, you think of the machine gun, you think of um, the, the use of high explosives. Uh, and then, of course, you get the um, atomic nuclear weapons. Um, you get all the scandals about pollution, um, the use of pesticides, and, um, and and various other scientific scandals, um, small and large. You think of the various catastrophes from chemical uh, factories with with pollution. You think of the thalidomide scandal, which was incredibly scarring for medicine when a a tranquilizer, a new tranquilizer, which was given to pregnant women, turned out to be um, cause catastrophic abnormalities to the fetus, um, and 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 on and on, and and so I I think all of these uh, scientific catastrophes had, had become deeply rooted in the psyche um, and, and kind of folk memories, so that when when a new scientific breakthrough is is being uh, promoted, that kind of naivety that says uh, everything's going to be fine, I, I, I think we just lost that. And and, and perhaps that's inevitable and, and not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, I think that's part of the uh, explanation. But I, I do think there's something very particular about uh, social media and the, the ways that... Um, misinformation and disinformation spread and and the way that conspiracy theories can spread um, through social media. So th I think that th there's something very new, which is still very poorly understood, I think, um, about precisely why it's happening to the extent that it is. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. And, and I have said previously that I, I, I was sure that the internet and in particular social media was fueling much of the spread of misinformation and that my kind of hypothesis was that you would see uh, people believing misinformation and conspiracy theories were, were likely to be older people who weren't digital natives and didn't have a level of scepticism uh, that that potentially my younger generation did have and I was kind of convinced that you know, my, my generation was much more hard-bitten and, and less naive about believing what they saw on their Facebook feeds. But actually, I have to confess, I found out that's actually not the, not the case. Um, there's been a recent opinion poll here in the UK, which shows that the younger you, you are, the more likely you are to believe in the particular issue of the COVID vaccine, that it's, that it's unsafe even after it's been um, passed uh, by the regulators. So in total, the survey said, 18% of people in the UK think that a vaccine which has been approved by the medical regulators will st would still be unsafe to take. Um, but if you break it up in by age, that goes up to a quarter, 27%, more than a quarter of those aged under 45 would think an approved vaccine was unsafe compared to just 7% of those aged 65 and above. 
So why do you think that is? What's your what's your take on that? It's a really interesting question. I don't have an immediate answer, actually. I think there's clearly a sense in which uh, young people tend to be more mistrustful of authority. They tend to be more sense in which I don't need these kind of broad mediating institutions of hospitals or government to tell me what to do. And I think particularly with millennials, there's a sense in which we 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 trust our friends and and those we deem to be more authentic than kind of bureaucracies um there's another theory another suggestion i've read which is that actually the fact is most young people thankfully because we live in a very healthy age have almost zero contact with with uh, with medicine and the medical world uh they might go to see their gp once every few years whereas when you're in your 60s and 70s you're more likely to be having regular contact with doctors and nurses and you'll be reassured that that content that they are kind professional well-trained people who have your best interests at heart yeah that's that's very interesting isn't it i'm, I'm sure there is quite a lot in that I was also reflecting, though, that one of the very unusual things about the coronavirus is this very, very strong age factor, um, so that um, that it seems that as every five years go by in your age, the the chance of of having serious illness or or mortality uh, increases progressively. Uh, So that if you're in the age group 18 to 30, uh, yes, there is a... A very small chance that you will be severely affected and might even die, but it, it's it's minuscule compared to the risks at say sixty, uh, and then seventy, and then eighty, and then ninety. Uh, this is a very very unusual feature about this virus because most um, dangerous viral infections don't respond like that, and and many of them do very seriously affect young people or children, and. I've often thought it would be a very different feel to this current pandemic if if we were watching uh, 18-year-olds and, and people in their early 20s uh, becoming desperately ill and being admitted to ITU. Um, I, th- I think the, the level of, of horror and, and concern of seeing very young people um, seriously affected is... is would be different. I mean, as a paediatrician, of course, I've seen a lot of that, and, and I've and I have seen how deeply distressing it is, understandably, for older people and parents to see a young child or an adolescent being severely affected by illness. Hmm. And what I find really fascinating is that I've we talked about this in a previous episode, but I've just dug up the stats in the UK here about the most and the least trusted professions. And um, as is expected, journalists down there, the fourth least trusted, 23% of people trust them, only really beating out government ministers, politicians and advertising executives. But the two most trusted professions are nurses and doctors. Uh, And so people have this general sense that their GP, the nurse who's looking after them when they go in as an inpatient, they are decent people who they will trust to tell the truth and and to be honest and authentic. And yet there is widespread suspicion of the same doctors and nurses who were involved in preparing and testing and regulating uh, the COVID vaccines. 
Yeah, it, it, it is deeply uh, curious that, I mean, I think a good example would be, do you remember when Boris Johnson uh, came out of hospital? I think Boris Johnson was probably an example of somebody who'd had very little contact with medics or nurses previously. He'd been fit and healthy and just got on with his life. But what he, you know, in a very moving way, didn't he? He spoke about the quality of care he'd received and, and the nurses who'd been by him with, by the bedside. And, and, and it was clear that his whole sort of emotional involvement and understanding and appreciation for particularly the nursing care, but for the whole hospital care, had been completely revolutionised by his own personal experience. Hmm. Yeah. You know, just another thought occurs to me, and that is um, a an infection which I was very closely monitoring uh, much earlier on in my career, and that was the HIV infection. Um, you know, when it first came, it was it seemed to be particularly involving young adults, uh, particularly those who were uh, in the gay community and also drug addicts and so on. And um, it's interesting there that, again, there was very high levels of trust in in the medical profession, those people who were infected, um, and, and, and a desperate desire to try to find treatments uh, because they were watching their friends die. So so there's no doubt that personal experience of serious illness uh, makes a huge difference in, in, in your attitudes, in your general attitudes. other thing you touched on it briefly but we really need to come back to this the kind of way that social media can pour fuel on the fire and almost act as a catalyst to i mean there's always been conspiracy theories there's always been misinformation there's always been a a small number of people who are willing to deliberately spread untruths for their own purposes but the way that they can kind of ripple across community like wildfire i think has just been turbocharged by group by uh, platforms like facebook instagram and twitter um, I yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I remember the pre-internet era. Um, I'm sounding fairly prehistoric now, but... Distant, but there misty an, past. Yes, yes. And what, there was was it like? time. what was it like? Yes, I know. It was extraordinary. I mean, we did have something we called the telephone, which had a wire in it. And, and, I'm not about, familiar with apart, that technology. <laughs> apart from that, there were things we called letters, we, and we used to write letters to one another. So that was like and, printing um, off emails, I suppose, and putting them in the post. A, a bit similar to that kind of thing. You wouldn't understand. But um, the... In in that era, of course, there were people, there were propagandists. I mean, you know, you would meet people and they would have a sheaf of of, of crudely photocopied. Um, we did have photocopiers, as I remember. <laughs> uh, um, and, and they would be, uh, you know, distributing them at tube stations or, you know, in the university, in the students' union. But, you know, their ability to propagate their ideas were... were incredibly limited and um, so the barriers to to mass propagation uh, were, were enormous and 
if you just think about what social media allows, it allows any any individual uh, the potential of um, of sending a message to hundreds of millions of people uh, effortlessly, hmm. and, um, and and that is extraordinary. And, and one of the the d very interesting but deeply troubling things about social media, and that is that. Um, there's lots of studies being sh and showing that that uh, content that has horror, shock, outrage, um, suspicion uh, is much more likely to spread and and uh, uh, achieve high levels of attention and then be copied and liked and all the rest compared with content that has good news, positive, uh, encouraging. Um, and and uh, there are obvious sort of basic psychological, biological reasons for this. You know, in order to survive as a species, uh, we have to be alert to potential danger. You know, in, in the jungle, uh, when there's a, a crackle of a twig behind you, uh, yes, it could be something completely insignificant, but it, of course it could be a predator. And so... That ability to alert to something quite trivial that nonetheless carries enormous significance to me, that's a fundamental biological property which we need to survive as a species. And if you then translate that into the uh, social media internet age, it means that um, a message which could potentially have a threatening content is much more relevant than the message uh, in terms of, it, of attracting attention. It seems to have much more salience. It seems to be something much more alerting. It, 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 it gets the heart racing, it gets the attention, it gets the, the focus in, in a way that um, a message that says everything is fine, that's reassuring, that there's nothing to be worried about, um, it's, it doesn't. And, and, and so because the whole, it's been sometimes described as an, an attentional economy, that um, getting eyeballs, getting clicks, leads directly to making money. Uh, the way that the the commercialization of the internet is all based around uh, garnering attention, and and so um, that there are, there are some just very basic reasons why shock, horror, disaster, uh, terrible uh, fraud being perpetrated on the public. Uh, this is the the real. You need to read this post. It'll save your life. Um, that those kind of that clickbait um, leads to extraordinary multiplication. Hmm. And there's also um, the kind of fundamental heart of every conspiracy theory is um, is in trying to impose order and simplicity on the kind of chaotic, random, confusing things that happen in the actual world. And I guess we all have a kind of psychological preference for for a simple explanation when, you know, the, the, the trying to understand how the mRNA vaccine works might require digging through pages and pages of complex, dry, dusty, dry scientific material hidden on some pharma website. Or you could watch this three minutes stickly produced YouTube documentary complete with kind of threatening music and, and it attacks all your emotional cues and it gives you uh, a very easily packaged and reproduced idea that it's going to interfere with your DNA. 
Yes, I'm afraid so. And and um, there are um, people who have all kinds of motives for um, perpetrating and disseminating um, these kind of very negative messages. And so I, I think it is a question ultimately of trust, isn't it? And, and of course, where there has been betrayal of trust, um, and, and, and sadly, historically, that, that's happened very frequently, uh, it becomes harder and harder to trust the, um, the, what you're being told, particularly if it seems to have some kind of uh, political um, or economic power behind it, as though it's coming with some ulterior motive. So again, to go back, it's fascinating, isn't it? That, so there's very high levels of trust for individual doctors and nurses that we know. But when those same doctors and nurses are part of a bigger establishment and are saying and promoting something which appears to have some deeper significance, all of a sudden they become deeply suspect and, and they're probably part of a great conspiracy bit, or, or else they're, they're, they're just tools of some uh, highly sophisticated and, and malevolent process. been surprised to see how prevalent uh, and widespread um, belief in in covid conspiracy theories and misinformation has been among christians yes i have and and deeply troubled by it um because um i and and some of my colleagues with that i'm closely linked to in the christian medical fellowship uh ha- have been approached by a large number of church leaders and uh, and other Christian people who have repeated various sort of conspiracy theories about and their concerns about about the vaccine and and and, um, and it, it, it is it, it is quite um, troubling how it, it seems that in some way Christian people could be more vulnerable to some of these conspiracy theories compared to people who would take a, a much more materialistic or atheistic position. I, I, in some ways, you could understand that, can't you? I mean, just imagine that you are a, a thoroughgoing physicalist, uh, someone who believes that there's nothing in the universe apart from physics and, and it, we're all just mechanisms. So fundamentally the idea that there's some vast conspiracy going on just seems unlikely in a world which is entirely due to physics whereas you know the fundamental to a to a christian world view it, it is that there is another reality behind the physics there is there is a deeper meaning a deeper story uh, and things are not necessarily what they seem and 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 so if you could see therefore that that um, you know, if if you're a Christian, and, and of course, I think both of us would say yes, we are, and we therefore we would buy into that. We would say things are not necessarily what they seem, Indeed. and that then raises the possibility that there may be something else going on that we that behind the apparent. You know, we, we're we're more open to that possibility. That's interesting. I guess you could even say that there is, um, and as you say, an openness to 
to to the the world behind and you can see that pre-pandemic there are there are some christians for instance who who believe that there is a conspiracy of kind of geophysicists and earth scientists hiding the age of the earth or manipulating carbon dating to claim that the world is millions of years old when it's not and i've also come across previous conspiracy theories and christians who believe for example that institutions such as the european union are some way fulfilling um by biblical prophecies about the end days and the mark of the beast and and various other apocalyptic rumblings so this is not coming out of completely uh, a clean slate when it comes to christians falling for kind of misinformation no i think that's right and and i think therefore uh, one of the part of the problems i think is that many people who are in positions of leadership within the church uh, actually have very little understanding of modern day science technology biology and so on uh, part of you know the problem of the um british educational system is that it's perfectly possible to sort of give up science and um at, at, at a relatively young age and 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 all of your education from that point on it involves humanities and and therefore uh, possibly you're you're more vulnerable to um scientific misunderstandings conspiracy theories and so on and uh, I, I mean you know the modern world is ex- exceedingly complex and none of us can be experts in everything but it's i think that's why we need one another uh, you know, it, it, it's ultimately about the understanding of the Christian body, of body life, that we all we're all members together of one body, and and we need one another. We need the different levels of expertise, and and that means that people who happen to have scientific, medical, technical expertise are are an important part of the body as a whole, uh, but equally important to people who have artistic, creative, and theological expertise. We need one another. In, in order to have a um, a full-orbed understanding of what's going on in the modern world. We've received quite a few um, messages sent through to to your website or to the podcast email, which we always appreciate. That's matters of life and death podcast at gmail.com and these are messages from people who are saying that they're they're confused and they're trying to figure out what is true and what is not they're hearing things from other christians about uh theories about the vaccines that they have microchips in them or that they're being produced by bill gates to brand us with the mark of the beast or to create a one world government or that the pandemic has been invented by mysterious forces and they don't know what to believe what advice would you have for people who are trying to disseminate truth from fiction and trying to work out what should they believe and what should they jettison well uh, i think the first thing is that there is such a thing as truth and lies i mean i think that that um that christianity is based on on openness and transparency and honesty and um I, I think that, therefore, that I think one should always be suspicious about um, presentations which are not based on on honesty and openness and transparency. Um, 
and, and one of the great advances of modern science has been this the recognition uh, that uh, that science has to be open it has to be open to to criticism there has to be openness of data and I, I think it is very remarkable that uh, all the scientific evidence on about coronavirus and um, is, is freely available I mean all the papers um, that are being published and there's a constant stream of papers they are all completely open access they can all be obtained by anybody on the internet uh, all the data about the vaccines is, is freely available. Uh, again, there's, there's been no attempt to m keep things for commercial reasons, to keep it quiet. All the evidence can be interrogated by, by anybody. And I think that tells you something. Uh, the, there's a great community of, of scientists here who are committed to transparency and to honesty and are, are, are trying to, um, to make everything available. So... I, I think I would encourage people to try to educate themselves about uh, the basics of how science works uh, if if you want to take it further. And, you know, that's part of the reason why we're doing these podcasts, uh, try to uh, explain the process in, in, and, and, and use the tools that are available. Uh, and... Um, Together, you know, we we understand, of course, that that we we all make mistakes and and we we make errors and we have misinterpretations and so on. But the fundamental fundamental way that science works is is that it is open to criticism. It's open to challenge. It's open to debate. And um, I I think you know the the fundamental idea, you know, and that is a Christian idea. It's the idea that you shine light, truth. You know, truth in in biblical thinking is light and errors and falsehood is darkness and Jesus said we must bring things to the light uh, and and so uh, we should look for people who are prepared to walk in the light who are prepared to be honest and open uh, and we should be suspicious of those who are claiming for the dark things that are going on um, and and are, are not able to bring all the evidence out uh, into the open I think that's a really helpful um, framing of it. What, uh, one of the things that I have landed on when I've been reflecting on how to connect my work as a journalist with my faith as a Christian is actually there is a real, as, an, as a shared endeavour between the work of journalism and the work of the Christian. And that's all about what you said. It's about truth and bringing things into the light. And fundamentally, I think at its best when journalism is done right, it's a profoundly Christian enterprise because its ultimate aim is to get truth to people's to different to people you know someone out there who isn't able to physically observe an occurrence or an event or understand something my job as a journalist is to report that in a truthful way to bring it into light for them um and and there's yeah there's a great quote from uh, the science fiction writer philip k dick who was constantly uh, i mean he was a drug addict himself he took lsd and all kinds of things and he wrote a whole series of very influential novels um which were constantly playing with what was fantasy what was reality what was the truth what wasn't the truth and so on but he said somewhere words to the effect as reality is what stays the same even when you don't believe in it <laughs> and and i've often thought that's a very very profound statement because that is the whole point about truth and reality it doesn't and sometimes there are inconvenient truths there are truths that we wish were not there but nonetheless that's the truth that's what the evidence shows 
and, and, and it remains the same whether we believe in it or not. And of course that's also what Christians would claim about the truth about Christ and about um, the whole spiritual world is that whether we believe it or not, if it's true, then it's true and it will remain the same uh, whether we believe it or not. And so ultimately we, we are called to be seekers after truth and and to build our lives on the truth and just lastly then i wanted to share a few things i think i feel quite privileged as a journalist because one of the things that we're trained to do is is to is to get in the weeds of our murky online world and try to verify and assess and authenticate information that we're receiving which is often coming from online sources when i'm writing a story i might be looking at a video on twitter or a message on facebook and trying to assess is this truthful? Is this not? Can I trust this? Can I not? And there are some kind of basic good, almost like digital principle, digital hygiene principles you can you can use when trying to kind of sift through the, 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 the fire hose of information we've talked about before that you receive online. Um, I found a very helpful uh, summary of these actually, ironically, on the World Health Organization's website, which they've entitled Navigating the Infodemic top tips to identify misinformation and disinformation. So I wanted to share a handful of those just as we close to give you some kind of tools to, to help you uh, sift through and, and, and not, not be fooled, not be taken in by uh, misinformation. So the first one is, is uh, assess the source. Where did the information come from? Who is sharing it with you? Where do they get it from? And that's really important, even if it's from family and friends because particularly on things like WhatsApp, there's a functionality where you can forward messages on and it, it might come from someone you would ordinarily trust, a family member, a close friend, but they got it from someone else who got it from someone else. And ultimately you need to work out where did this chain begin and are that, is that person trustworthy? Uh, secondly is uh, go beyond headlines. So make sure that you don't just uh, look at the, the top headline of a news story or an article, but read the entire story uh, search more widely than just social media uh, try and see what other people are saying about the same the same thing diversify your kind of sources thirdly um, identify the author try and work out who is writing this are they a real person <laughs> often they're not and if they are are they a credible person uh, check the date is this a recent uh, story is it relevant is it up to date is it is it has it got the latest information in it has something been used out of context a lot of misinformation comes from credible sources uh, but being used uh, weeks or months after they've actually talking about it and you actually find out that image was a real image but it came from a different event three years earlier uh, and then examine the supporting evidence um, find facts, quotes from experts, statistics, studies that verify the original things check your biases, think, look inwardly why do I believe that, why do I want to believe that what am I being drawn to, does this challenge my assumptions or does it tell me what I want to hear and lastly, look for uh, trusted fact-checking organisations, um, global news outlets that have got a track record on on uh, authenticity and telling the truth. Um, so I hope a little bit of that uh, might help people when they're trying to, to wade through the fire hose of misinformation that we're all being uh, deluged with on a daily basis. That's a good, a good list. And we'll put a link on the website um, to that document. Okay, I think we'll uh, draw this episode to a close there. Thanks very much, as always, John. Uh, just a few things to mention before we before we say goodbye. Um, 
please do uh, keep your feedback, your questions coming in. Thank you for those who have already uh, sent sent uh, topics that you'd like us to discuss or questions. We do enjoy reading all of them and we are definitely going to be inspired by some of them for some future episodes. The email address, if you'd like to get in touch with us, is mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and secondly, uh, if, you, if you'd like to hear a bit more about what John's been up to, some of his other writing, uh, he has a monthly email newsletter, which you can uh, sign up for uh, at his website uh, to receive um, It's uh, some links of things he's been reading, some of his latest writing and other interesting things. Um, so please do head over to John's website. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com, johnwhite.com. But thanks, John. Uh, we'll speak to you in the next one. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which is a treasure trove of resources to read, listen to and watch on lots of the things that we talk about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T-S-Y-A-T on Twitter. And for some of my journalism, head to tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask, a topic for us to explore, or a news development you think we should respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time.